1: Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect Magazine. And this week we're going to talk to the historian Stephen Wertheim about US foreign policy. Now Stephen is currently at Columbia University in New York and writes widely about foreign policy in The New York Times, foreign policy, Uh, The Journal and many other places. And he was also, incidentally, one of Prospect's top 50 thinkers in the world this year. His new book, Out Right Now, Tomorrow, The World, traces the remarkably rapid way that the US moved from its founding determination to avoid foreign military entanglements towards an idea of itself as... No doubt, I paraphrase, but something like The Policeman of the World. Fascinating story in itself, but one which is in this most fateful of American election seasons. Also a story that raises questions about whether the US can and should now change course, just as it did in the 1940s. So Stephen, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me. Great to be with you.
1: And let's have a word, first of all, because, you know, a lot of people, even people who follow current affairs, we've all lived with American dominance, hegemony in the world for as long as we can remember, except perhaps if we're in our 90s. So just give us the, the the big backstory here. Your first chapter starts, I think, in 1776 and goes up to 1940 or something.
2: It romps right through what is still most of American history. And what I argue in that chapter is that, despite the fact that the United States constantly expanded its power, it uh, acquired a major continental domain across North America, it took colonies in 1898 of significant size. Despite all that, through all that history, American presidents continued to maintain that they should avoid military entanglements in the old world centered on Europe and secondarily, including Asia. So in that sense, George Washington's farewell address, which said that the United States should steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world, continued to have sway in American discourse and in American actions. And obviously in our own time, that's completely changed. It's now just an article of faith that the United States should have military dominance on a global scale, so the question that I wanted to ask in the book is, how did how did this change? Exactly when did it
1: change? And you pinpoint it to the fall of France, I think, in May nineteen forty. Um, but some, as well as the odd colonies and so on that you talk about, there was the small matter of the First World War before that. How come that wasn't a really big reset?
2: It was very significant, but the. League of Nations, first of all, which the U.S. President Woodrow Wilson put forward, uh, was rejected by the U.S. Senate. So that's one thing. Uh, It's clear that the United States, coming out of the war, uh, wanted to avoid something that smacked of a military alliance, an entanglement, a commitment to go to war again in Europe. And that view actually hardened over the course of the 20s and 30s as uh, Americans uh, left and right uh, increasingly viewed the Great War as uh, something in which the United States had little stake uh, and should want to avoid in the future if it were to happen again. And so that's why leading up to World War II, uh, the United States pursued a, a deeper neutrality than before to try and avoid the way in which Uh, it was dragged in to the First World War.
1: I mean, in the British side of things, the most famous speech probably that Winston Churchill gave uh, in uh, May 1940 about, you know, we will fight them on the landing grounds, we'll fight them on the beaches and all of that. Somewhere in there, he drops in a line that says, uh, you know, it might be difficult, Kent might get overwhelmed, we'll have Germans everywhere, but never mind in the end, the new world with all its industrial might will come to our rescue. Um, And I thought of that in looking at your book yesterday because um, according to your story, as I understand it, there was absolutely no certainty whatsoever at at that point that um, America was necessarily going to make this huge change, of course.
2: That's right. It was a a bold pronouncement by Churchill. Uh, Turned out to be quite correct but for several months in the wake of the fall of France to Nazi Germany, and this is, I mean, nobody expected this to happen. Some of Hitler's own generals didn't expect it to happen. France had the strongest army uh, in the world, Uh, but when it was conquered within just six weeks, uh, it suggested, you know, not only that the Germans would rule France for the indefinite future, but that Germany had mastered uh, offensive warfare, something that had eluded the powers in World War I. Perhaps it would go on to conquer the British Isles, perhaps take the British fleet, the British Empire, and now for Americans across the Atlantic, they had to confront a prospect of having a purely hemispheric existence. In fact, for a few months it seemed like the United States was so weak in its military strength that it would only be able to defend what they were calling, what post-war planners were calling a quarter sphere, down to the part where Brazil uh, juts out into the Atlantic. They were ready to write off the rest of South America, this traditional Monroe Doctrine uh, domain where the United States was supposed to exert leadership. They didn't see a prospect of holding on to that part of the Western Hemisphere, at least for a few months. Then, of course, things changed.
1: So Stephen, your book's very keen to point out that this move from, uh, you know, keeping clear of foreign entanglements to getting stuck in, for want of a better word, um, uh, was not an inevitable product of circumstance or some iron law of social science. It was um, a decision. So who was making the decision and what were the key things that were weighing up?
2: So the U.S. state remained quite small coming into World War II. The army, for example, was uh, ranked 19th in size in the world. It was smaller than the Dutch. So American officials had very little capacity to undertake post-war planning. And yet there had been, over the course of the last two decades, a uh, buildup of organizations, we would call them today think tanks, Uh, where experts did a lot of the long-range thinking and planning. And so when the war in Europe broke out, members of the Council on Foreign Relations came to the State Department and offered to do post-war planning already before the United States was in the war uh, on behalf of the State Department. The State Department agreed, and the uh, council planners had already lined up Rockefeller Foundation money to fund the whole thing. So there's uh, just under the surface of... The traditional realm of diplomatic historians, right? The top decision makers, President Roosevelt and his cabinet, just under that surface, uh, there's a whole terrain of thinkers and planners who were very actively uh, trying to determine the shape of things to come. And that's uh, the the actors that my book focuses and, on.
1: And so, I mean, there was, and forgive me, I'm not like expert on this at all, but there was a kind of strand of uh american thinking wasn't there that was more expansionist going further back to theodore roosevelt and um like and this council of foreign relations you talk about like which i think was founded in the early 20s or something so who had there been a, a strain of um thinking that was kind of waiting for its moment and then may 1940 proved to be its moment
2: I think that's a fair way of reading the story. But let's understand that the very same people who come up with uh, US global supremacy as the answer to the problems of America and the world, the very same people, just a few months before they start to arrive at this solution, are sitting down and not even fathoming that the United States could project military force on a routine basis beyond its traditional Western Hemisphere domain. So within the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, there's a, a military group led by the future CIA director Alan Dulles and a New York Times analyst, Hanson Baldwin. And on the eve of the fall of France, they send a memo to the State Department cataloging schemes for disarmament that went back to the ancient Greeks who prohibited poisoning wells and uh, went up to Winston Churchill in 1913 who proposed a one-year holiday on naval building. 12 months later, that same group of people uh, are planning for the United States in partnership with the British Empire to essentially police the world on a global scale. So yes, there are absolutely deep roots uh, that uh, Uh, drew upon a, you might say, a a kind of legacy of American internationalism in which Americans wanted to see the world uh, open to intercourse, interaction, law on basically liberal American style terms. And there were deep roots in American exceptionalism, uh, this uh, notion foundational to the United States that America should in some way be the engine of world history. It was a more advanced model for the world. And part of its mission in the world was to see the world become more like America. And yet for all this time up to the fall of France in the middle of 1940, uh, Americans thought that they could have universal, basically universal intercourse on liberal terms without uh, sending armed force across the world. And they thought that it was truer to American exceptionalism, that the United States should be a model to the world, a beacon, yes, it would perhaps police its new world domain, but in the old world, there was a danger of the United States getting entangled with force and becoming corrupted so itself. It, it,
1: it's all kind of shifting um, at this time, you know, and this is before Pearl Harbor and then Pearl Harbor cements it in 1941. Um, you're quite um, down on it. I think at some point you say this, this, this is a kind of tragic flip of the American mindset. Obviously, for lots of people in Europe, including Britain, but the, the rest of Europe as well, they're very, very grateful that America did flip and become involved when it did because the alternative might have been, you know, the Nazi rule or even if you'd got away without that, then Stalinist rule afterwards. I mean, what would have been, was there an alternative that would have led to a happy outcome that isn't totalitarian domination in Europe?
2: Right. I I think it was uh, both heroic and tragic for the United States at the same time. And I think some of those who made the decision for the United States to intervene in in World War II prior to Pearl Harbor, when it was obvious, uh, and to lead the post-war world viewed it in a similar way. They could see that there was a reason the United States uh, hadn't sought uh, military entanglements globally prior to this point. Uh, that it would it would be a kind of imperial-like venture, imperial adjacent, uh, and there was something un-American and even un-internationalist about it. Uh, it would lead to a kind of perpetual war uh, situation, which we have today in the in the form of. Of endless war. But they still thought, as you say, it was worth the price because a world order dominated by totalitarian conquerors was not something that they wanted to see. And I cannot help but sympathize with that. Uh, so, you know, I'm not writing a brief uh, for or against anybody in this story. I want people to read the book and understand the complexities involved. Um, but you know, I, I think the question it raises for our, our present moment to jump ahead is that in a world without totalitarian conquerors on the scale of those that existed in the middle of the 20th century, is dominance, military dominance, worth the price? But there was, to go back to your question, there was a real alternative laid out uh, in uh, 1940 and 41. And that was that the United States should defend the entire Western hemisphere by force, but not go further, and there was a sophisticated geopolitical argument put forward uh, to the effect that the, there was no way that uh, whatever happened in, in Europe and Asia, an outside power could successfully invade the United States as long as the oceans uh, provided protection and denied a territorial foothold to an outside invader, and that was a popular view for for a lot of Americans, um, but. It lost out starting in the in the fall of nineteen forty, uh, and so that was a view I think that would have had a kind of narrower focus on what was necessary for American security and and prosperity.
1: So, um, like given how deep it was in the culture, the idea of avoiding the foreign entanglements, you know, even up into the war. I mean, it's extraordinary the consistency in policy that you then got, you know, from. Korea right through to Vietnam that like the U.S. was, you know, going to get stuck in for better or worse all over the place. Was it popular, do you think, or was was public opinion never persuaded in the way that the people running the country were?
2: Many of the particular wars varied in popularity. The Korean War turned very unpopular, which can often be forgotten because it's been overshadowed by the Vietnam War. And obviously, we know the story about the Vietnam War. But I think there's been remarkably little open contestation about the very notion of perpetual or near-perpetual U.S. global military dominance, in part because its advocates often claim, as a succession of presidents, including President Trump has claimed, that what the united states is doing is pursuing peace through strength deterrence in other words is the hoped for outcome it just so happens that time after time we don't get peace we get a succession of wars.
1: so um like in other words people were sort of sold a bit of a a, a, bit, a bit of a lie you think um let's talk a bit about the the before trump the 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 post cold war presidents because like, the conventional wisdom is that Clinton, compared to, say, Tony Blair over here, was very hesitant to get involved in Yugoslavia. You've got, towards the end, stuff about George W. Bush, who we remember as this kind of great, you know, full-spectrum dominance kind of imperialist, really. But but he also made noises about kind of keeping out of the entanglements. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that, like, you know, the the end of the Cold War in 1991... Like, like it did, if we just look at the words of politicians, it did lead to a, um, a change of emphasis and, and more of a retreat maybe to an older um, uh, position, but it didn't really seem to change the policy.
2: That's a great point. That's a great point. Um, the more I think about it, the more uh, the story I tell from World War II has a lot to say about the 1990s leading up to our present moment. It's been something of a puzzle uh, to scholars and intellectuals, why did the United States not choose to pull back with its military forces after the Soviet Union, against which uh, Cold War was waged, completely collapsed in 1991? Uh, and in fact, there were noises that maybe this would happen for a while. Um, both uh, George H.W. Bush, the president at the time, and Bill Clinton, uh, promised uh, to deliver something of a peace dividend and I think we what explains the decision instead to pursue a greater military primacy than ever before uh, goes back precisely to the 1940 41 moment where the decision was made not just to enter World War II but to pursue military dominance far into the future perhaps forever because Hitler's conquest of France was interpreted as invalidating the assumption of traditional American internationalism that peaceful intercourse could somehow, in some way, transcend power politics and armed force. Instead, what American intellectuals learned at that time or thought that they learned was that there was no way to ever transcend the use of force and instead, whichever state Dominated the world by force would uh, foster its own preferred form of order, interaction, rules, etc.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite.
2: So, I think this is important. It's not just a debate at that time about what to do about the access powers but also, and maybe even more f- profoundly, about America's general role in the world. And so it makes sense that in the 1990s, the United States um, pursued uh, greater dominance than ever. It seemed to be the fulfillment of the hopes of 1945 uh, that under American armed dominance, the world could flourish and there could be something like peace greater than there had been in in the Cold War. There's another aspect to the 1990s as well, which is that the United States could have its cake and eat it too. It did cut defense spending as a percentage of GDP because the Cold War was over. uh, And it left the decade and entered the new millennium uh, despite those cuts with uh, a more enviable position over all possible competitors than uh, some thought ever before. And I think that decade, even though a lot of the consequences of the decisions made or not made in that decade uh, weren't um, apparent then, uh, that uh, gave a whole class of uh, foreign policy experts, uh, allowed them to enjoy a kind of holiday from history in which trade-offs constraints didn't seem to exist, both domestic and international. And I think that conditioned uh, some of the response to the 9-11 attacks, uh, the creation of a, a war on terror, and uh, indeed the pursuit of uh, endless war to our own moment.
1: And then I imagine, you know, you've got um, Obama and he kind of pulls back, but he's not going to pull back too far. And he's still very active in Afghanistan, Pakistan and other places i mean you're quite interesting on this word isolationism which is uh i think you say almost a a made-up word at some point to sort of um set against anyone who's not a militarist and does that do you think that thought that like to, to to pull back is to be isolationist inhibit people like obama from um cooling down the american involvement in the rest of the world
2: I think so. Every American president since FDR has warned the public against a possible reversion to so-called isolationism. To my knowledge, Donald Trump has not done this, and so if he uh, leaves office in January and continues not to do this, he would break that mold, which is an interesting feature of our own moment. Um, But I I do think that... um, the, the I-word is something that has inhibited a more meaningful conversation in the United States about its options in the world. It was only in the 1930s that the ism, isolationism, came into any kind of widespread use. Nobody had even used it as an epithet before. And those who were branded isolationists then as now insisted that they were nothing of the sort, that what they wanted to do was find some limitation on the use of force. By the United States, but otherwise wanted to engage the United States in the world. And as I mentioned, the, the America firsters who wanted to keep the United States out of World War II prior to Pearl Harbor, uh, I mean, if if anyone's an isolationist, it's them. But even in military terms, uh, they maintain that the United States should defend the entire Western Hemisphere by force from any outside invasion. So if that's isolationism as Central Americans ask South Americans what they think about that. So it's just implausible that the options for American engagement in the world are global military dominance or isolationism, and yet that's the way American political discourse represents uh, the options. Which is to say, there's no option at all.
1: Although, as you say, you know, it's it's, it's as it has represented it, maybe until we get to Donald Trump. I mean, I suspect you don't like Donald Trump. Most of our listeners won't like Donald Trump. But in certain respects, has he been a better president for foreign policy than any we've had in a long time? He hasn't started any major wars.
2: He hasn't, although he came really close by assassinating Soleimani in, it feels like, 10 years ago, but it was this year, in January. And that you know, for all anyone could have predicted, I mean, that could have started an outright war between the United States and Iran. And I'm quite concerned about where the US-Iranian relationship would go if uh, Trump uh, has a second term. So I'm not sure he deserves all that much credit. I mean, it's kind of a low bar that a president deserves credit for not starting a a new war, even as uh, Trump, you know, I mean, he had vowed to get the United States out of wars. He hasn't ended a single endless war. And in most cases, he's actually ramped up uh, military engagements uh, in the greater Middle East and as part of the, the so-called war on terror, as well as uh, uh, really presided over an intensification uh, of hostility between the United States and China, which may not lead to a, a hot war in the near term, though who knows, But could lock us into something like a, a cold war for, for the medium to, to long term. So I'm quite concerned about that. But okay, I do want to you know recognize that there's something going on uh, in what Trump Trump campaigned on uh, four years ago, uh, and and yes, part of his calculus or the way he represents America in the world is distinctive. Um, He doesn't, although I I think he's more of a a militarist than an anti-interventionist, certainly in a kind of cultural sense with his reverence for military strength, um, he does seem to not equate American engagement in the world with the use of force. He is able to imagine uh, publicly, you know, a a Korean peninsula without US soldiers there. Um, I think his predecessors, uh, Obama Bush Clinton would not have said the same thing uh, so he has he doesn't fear so you might say he doesn't have a particular fear of isolationism um, on the other hand you know we have to judge by the actions he's taken he still subscribes to this what I think it's a myth uh, of peace through strength and he's built up the U.S. military which now outspends the next 10 militaries in the world uh, combined so you know I don't have high hopes in that sense but he's certainly thrown open this new kind of discursive space for people to think about what the role of the United States in the world should be uh, and I do think that the, it's been productive on that level we'll see we'll see what the results are after Trump uh, and whether they were worth uh some of the price that we that we paid in the past four years.
1: I've got to ask you what you think about the Korea thing. I mean, the most bizarre uh, episode in international relations I can remember. I mean, he's ended up chumming up with the um, president of North Korea, hasn't he? Having threatened to, you know, blow the country off the face of the earth at the beginning. um, It's pretty. And and yet, like, it seems that we're going to end his term if, if it is to be ended, um, with the prospect of a war in that region a lot more distant than it was when, when he came in.
2: After, as you say, uh, threats of fire and fury, being willing to meet with the leader of North Korea and tone down the atmosphere and have an opening to a diplomacy. I think not every American political leader would have done that and it shows something important uh, in Trump's approach to the world. He's in his own right-wing way, he has sometimes made this case for talking to people uh, for in other words, diplomacy. The tragedy is though, that many of his own advisors were not really in favor of settling uh, differences with North Korea and the diplomacy the process that has taken place since the opening, it's been several years now, has not produced much tangible. And so, you know, whether it, Trump is reelected or whether there's a Biden administration, um, yes, uh, the prospect of war has been diminished in the past few years than when the administration opened. but. We risk not really having made tangible progress when there was an opportunity to do so. And that opportunity most of all came from the South Korean government, uh, which was pushing for meaningful diplomacy uh, and found itself stifled by uh, the U.S. administration. And so I think um, there's, I, I'm hopeful that there's an opportunity for more to come out of this. It's going to require, though, the United States to get over hang ups with just simply sitting down with adversaries. Uh, that's what diplomacy ought to be about. And it's gonna require also uh, following the lead of uh, the South Koreans, uh, being willing to be a good ally and not just make claims in the name of, of alliances that our actual allies don't prefer. Uh, and I think it also requires getting over this fantasy that somehow the North is going to totally abandon Uh, its uh, nuclear weapons program. Uh, That program should be limited, uh, but I think it's important to prioritize peace and diplomacy on the peninsula, ratchet down tensions, and then we can see uh, after the step-by-step process uh, exactly uh, what kind of limits can be placed on armaments.
1: So if we end up with President Biden, he's an old guy, he's been around for a long time, he was in favour of the Iraq war, I think, at the time. Is it going to be like this Trump bizarre chapter never happened and we'll just get back to the conventional wisdom as it's been known in Washington since uh, the middle of 1940? Or do you think actually this episode's going to mean uh, or maybe generational changes will mean that um, we're in for a big and overdue rethink, even with this kind of rather creaky old figure at the helm.
2: It's possible that Biden and some of his advisors would like, you uh, know, word to restore the status quo anti-Trump, but uh, I hope that they don't think so. Uh, and I think that they will find that it's very hard to do that. Part of the reason is the generational change you alluded to. Uh, there's now uh, One or or more generations of Americans who didn't grow up with a Cold War don't remember that having ever happened and have seen uh, destructive American militarism their whole life. And they know service members who have been deployed many times to Afghanistan. Uh, They know communities wrecked by this. And they feel the constraints now uh, in their lives, economically, first of all, and in terms of these threats of pandemic disease and climate chaos, and they just don't understand why is the United States devoting more than a trillion dollars year after year, as if it's obvious, to national security defined overwhelmingly in military terms. So I think you know a lot of the Democratic Party, which I do think Biden is seeking to represent, uh, has moved dramatically in the past decade and maybe especially the past five years. Most Democratic voters now say that the number one national security threat, it's not Russia, it's not China, it's climate change. And that I think has profound implications if you follow them for US relations with China, in particular, the number one emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. Uh, I also think that Biden, there's a difference between Biden and say Barack Obama in how those figures are received among the Democratic electorate. Many who were non-interventionists gave a lot of uh, leeway to the Obama administration because Barack Obama was one of the best uh, American political leaders uh, you could imagine uh, as the President of the United States at that time, and he faced unremitting hostility in a hawkish direction from Congress. Uh, I don't think Obama would have been the nominee of the Democratic Party had he not opposed the Iraq War from the start. Uh, I think Hillary Clinton would have been the nominee in in 2008. So we face a different situation if it's a President Biden because Biden almost explicitly presents himself not as the future of the party or even the defining element of the party now, but as a kind of caretaker, a bridge to a new generation. And I am hopeful that he'll Uh, He'll respond accordingly. And on the other side, that uh, people on the left uh, and younger people will not be quiet about voicing uh, some of their complaints with American foreign policy.
1: Let's turn then, Stephen, to the other side of the aisle. Um, You're saying that the Democrats are in for a big change. Do you think the Republicans are also likely to change course post Trump and get into a position where they're also a bit skeptical about power around the world? In other words, could it be that having been consensual, this idea of American hegemony, it will soon become a rather friendless idea?
2: That could very well be. And in fact, uh, you know, before the fall of France, there were very few Americans who were advocating U.S. military hegemony around the world. So at least, uh, you know, prospects for restraint today actually might look uh, higher uh, than, than prospects for American primacy looked uh, uh, at the beginning of 1940. I think that if Trump loses the election, there will be a kind of competition among conservatives and Republicans, not exactly to um, repudiate Trump and go back to uh, what came before Trump but to try and understand which aspects of Trumpism to retain and which to discard and I think it'd be very interesting to see how Trump is interpreted as a foreign policy figure and uh, will in particular some Republicans recognize that Trump's anti-interventionist rhetoric contributed significantly, I think, to his appeal, particularly in crucial states that Republicans need to win if they're going to win the White House. So it's very much up for grabs, I think, if there's a President Biden, what will the oppositional politics to a Biden administration be? We're used to Republican uh, Republicans in Congress responding in a more hawkish way to democratic presidents, perhaps that will be the case on China, which being opposed to China is becoming something of an identity. I fear on the Republican side of the aisle, but with respect to the Middle East in particular, um, I, I, it's very possible that we'll see real competition within the Republican Party uh, over, you know, whether the United States should be. Uh, more militarized in the Middle East or dramatically less militarized in the Middle East.
1: Fascinating stuff, Stephen. Thanks so much. It's evident that there's been a lot in play in the past and there's going to be an awful lot in play after this election, which is now pretty much upon us. All from us for this time. Thanks for joining us this week on The Prospect Interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. Um, Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you again next week when we'll be discussing the result of that.